Our scripture lesson today comes from what is known as the gospel within the gospel. Uh, It it comes from Luke 15. It's a story that many of you may have heard before uh, about what some people call the prodigal son, but what I would submit to you uh, would be better named the loving father. Let's share in God's good word together. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Not long ago, hundreds of senior leaders were asked one question. What if anything, about the way people are leading today needs to change in order for leaders to be successful in what has become a very complex, rapidly changing environment where we are faced with seemingly intractable challenges and insatiable demand for innovation. Interestingly, across those hundreds of interviews, there was simply one answer. And, and it came in lots of different ways, but it really boiled down to this. What people said is that we no longer just need brave leaders. We need braver leaders and more courageous cultures that foster courageous leadership. What we know, though, is that it is love that leads to courage. It's love that leads to courage, and that's what we're going to talk about today as we conclude our sermon series on how to live a brave life. The author of the the book that many of you have been studying in small groups says this, Tom Berlin does. He says, Jesus calls us to be courageous people so that we will live life fully and use our lives to bless the people around us and the world in which we live. This is why we study courage, because God wants you and I to be courageous to live fully into the life that he has for you and for me, and that your life matters. You matter. Your courage matters. Your love for others matters, and the love that you pour into others allows them to become courageous as well. So as a very quick recap, uh, week one, we learned that courage is not the absence of fear. It is the right ordering of fear, right? Not the absence of fear. It's the right ordering of fear. If you had no fear at all, that would simply be foolishness. We have to have the wisdom to know what to, you know, risk for. And this courage comes better with clarity. And clarity on what God is asking us to do empowers courage then to rise to the top. And we see this perfectly in Jesus. When Jesus is is baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted, and then he comes into the synagogue for his first sermon. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. That is Jesus' core mission. That is his message. He has super clarity on why he has come to earth. To bring good news to the poor. To give sight to the blind. To let those who are captive, to set them free. And to help the oppressed. Week two, we talked about the conviction of courage. And conviction enables us to choose what is right over what is comfortable. And that's really important because there are all sorts of things that are right, but man, are they uncomfortable. It takes courage. It takes brave-er leadership than maybe we've had in our own life. So again, um, 
Tom Berlin in week three, he would say the next thing is candor. And candor is simply the ability to be open, honest, direct, and frank in speech and conversation. And I think this might be one of the most important pieces of this whole series uh, because what I find is that more and more often, uh, at least when I was growing up, it seemed like people had a lot of candor with me at least. They're like, you need to do this. And that um, I don't hear much anymore. And that's so important because when we fail at candor, we pass down problems. Will you say that with me? When we fail at candor, we pass down problems. Family after family, generation after generation. And then it's just, it's just passed on and, and we still deal with it. And then week four, we talked about hope. Hope's so important. Hope is knowing God will show us what to do when we need to do it. Not before. He doesn't lay it all out before us, but just right at the right time. And you can take great comfort in that because you probably don't know exactly what you need to do when you're nervous about something, but you can trust that God will give you what you need right then. And then last week we talked about fortitude, really a life of courage, when courage shows up day after day after day. So fortitude is courage that endures over time and through hardship and adversity. Fortitude comes when we draw our strength from God rather than our own limited reservoir. So in in case somehow we missed it through this whole deal, this is never about us. It's never about our own strength. It's that we look at the love of God, the strength of God, the forgiveness of God that we see in the cross, and we live new because we live in love. And that's what we're talking about this week, that love leads to courage. Will you say that with me? Love leads to courage. And it, it doesn't, it's not only your own love that leads you to courage. It's other people's love that can lead you to courage. Right? Have you ever, you ever seen um, a child with their parent as they uh, are maybe at the store or they're walking down an airport? And, and, and I, I love particularly four-year-olds. I think they're super cute. You know, they're potty trained and not too sassy quite yet. You know, just that age. And they're excited about everything. And um, sometimes... Um, I'll, I'll be at the airport minding my own business, or uh, one of the favorite stories that Chantel likes to tell on us is um, we would go take our boys to the pediatrician together, and I don't know if you, any of you all know this about me, but I'm, I like to think of myself as super personable here, and that's part of my job, and I really do enjoy uh, being your pastor, but when I'm not at work, I'm not all that friendly, because I'm peopled out, and so if I've got a job to do, I go do the job. And so we were taking our boys to um, the pediatrician, and Chantel was doing, basically leads our family when we're not on campus here. She does pretty much everything. And I, I was there to really just be a chauffeur. And so I, I got a magazine, and I, I crossed my legs, and I, I, I started, you know, looking at it. And, and there was all this case. Have you ever been to a pediatrician's office lately? It was just terrible, like kids everywhere. And I'm mean, sitting there, I'm reading... And there's this tiny little hand that reaches up and grabs the top of the magazine and pulls it down. And it's this precious little, like, three-year-old girl. She just looks up at me and she says, hey, mister, read to me. (laughs) And then she's just, like, crawled up in my lap. And I'm like, where's the mom? (laughs) And I looked up. She had, like, six other kids. And she was trying to check out. And the mom was like, yeah, read to her. I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) okay. Right? But my hunch is, is that the reason that girl could be so courageous is that she knew she was loved and protected by her mom and her brothers and sisters. 
Right? That'd be a very different scenario if, if she was all alone, right? And she, she saw some man. You would run the other way. But it's, it's the love of the family, the love of community, the love of your brothers and sisters that leads you to courage, that gives you life and joy and the ability to say, hey, mister, read to me. Okay. And on the flip side, a lack of courage, right? A lack of love leads to not courage, but to cowardice and indifference and judgment. And this is actually what Jesus is addressing in Luke 15. He's not just telling a story to tell a story. He's telling a story in such a way that he can actually answer some cowards, some hard-hearted, judgmental religious folk known as Pharisees. So the story in Luke 15 actually starts like this. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're judging him. You see, judgment is cowardly because it lacks the courage of honest self-assessment. Those folks would rather sit back and judge what Jesus is doing and judge the people that he's with than look at their own places where they are short of what God's calling them to. Now, I'm sure that, you know, that only happened 2,000 years ago. It would never happen today. But that's what Jesus was dealing with. And he said, so if you want to know, because he knew their hearts, he said, if you want to know how God is, if you want to know how this works, let me show you. And so he tells a story about these two brothers, the younger of which is completely off page. They're in a shame-honor culture, something we don't know a lot about around here. But, but one of the things in a shame-honor culture is that you would never, ever, ever shame your mother or your father. And actually, if you did, it was a death penalty. People knew that. But, but nonetheless, the younger boy says, you know, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me what's mine, and I'm going to go. And remarkably, somehow, the father doesn't kill him or, you know, beat him or whatever. I'm not, you know, recommending that. But in that day, that would not have been unusual. The father actually says yes. He blesses his son. And then the story continues. It goes on like this. It says, when he had spent everything, the boy, a severe famine took place throughout that country. He had not planned for the future. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now, if you're a Jewish person hearing that in that day, that's really all you need to know. I mean, if the boy's working with pigs, that's as bad as it gets. That's all they needed to know. Because pigs were unclean. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. I started thinking. And, and see, here's the thing. In Orthodox Judaism, you don't eat pork. You don't touch pigs. Ever. The son could not have been further from home. And then he starts to think. He goes, well, hold on. I'm out here. It can't get worse. And if I'm thinking about my dad and where I come from, I mean, even the people that work for him, even the slaves that work for the people that work for him, at least they can eat. I mean, I've, I watch my dad treat people much better than I'm being treated now, even, even if they weren't a part of the family, even if they weren't a part, you know, of our family system or our ranch. This, this is what I want you to know, because sometimes you, when you hear this preached, and I've heard this sermon hundreds of times from different preachers, and I've studied it all my life, but what we often miss 
is that even the thought of going home is based on the father. It becomes possible because what he knows of the character of his father. He couldn't have even thought, that thought couldn't have even come to his mind if he understood his father to be harsh and punitive and hateful. Even the ability to think about the possibility of coming home is based on the love of the father. Do you see that? It's so important that you see that how love in one person can actually transform the thoughts of another. So when the boy thought this through, the scripture says, he came to himself. And he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here, I am dying of hunger. And he was. Because pride is a hell of our own making. Right? Right? I mean, this is a boy who chose this life, and he had nothing to eat, and he was starving to death, and no one would feed him. And, and, and when, I, when I use the word hell, what I'm saying is it's separation from the love of the Father, which is what the boy has chosen, and all the consequences that go with that. And every person on the planet always has that choice. But make no mistake, it's of his own making. C.S. Lewis always would say that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Right from the inside. It's something that we choose. It's not something that's pat, you know, cast down upon us. And I just wonder if the boy, uh, you know, as, as Jewish boys in that time would have, and of course this is a fictional character that Jesus is using as uh, a way to teach, that it would, it would be um, something that you would think would be normative that he would actually know the songbook of the church and the Psalms, where it says, for a day in your courts, O God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, than live in the tents of wickedness. And I wonder if he, he had that scripture in his mind and he thought, yeah, it'd be better to be a doorkeeper at my dad's house than out here dying with the pigs. The love of the father. Tom Berlin says it this way. He says, the younger son does something that is so courageous that some go a lifetime without ever doing it. Maybe you know folks like that. That they know they've messed up. They know they've hurt their family. They know they've brought shame to the family. But they can't seem to muster up the courage to make it right. So they just stay estranged until they die. And that breach is never healed. That brokenness is never brought together. The crooked place is never made straight. Because it takes courage and it takes love to make that courage rise up. This thing that the boy is going through in his heart and in his mind, it's called repentance. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. It's to turn your life toward the Father. It's a a whole way of being, a whole way of thinking, a whole way of moving and acting. It's not a one-time choice. It's a way of turning your life towards God, what God would have you do, to be in peace and love and harmony with one another. And sometimes that's really hard work. And you have to, of course, to lay your pride at the side. And you also have to say, oh, yeah, I did that, that was wrong, and I was way off page. And some folks just never choose to do that. And they continue to live in a hell of their own making. We all have this choice. But friends, make no mistake that it is the love of the Father that makes such a decision possible in the first place. It's a beautiful thing that our God loves us so much that he would send his son. So the boy does. He he sets off. And he went to his father, the scripture says. But don't forget this. The son hopes that his dad will be like his dad has always been. But he doesn't know for sure. When he gets up and goes back, he's wasted half of his dad's money. 
of everything the family owned. And so the son does not know what the father will do. He really doesn't. He's walking in hope. Maybe a little dread, but it's better than being with the pigs. So he's going to go. And I also wonder if the boy didn't know this scripture as well from Exodus, that anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. That makes that walk a little longer, doesn't it? As he walks back to his father, that everybody knows what he's done. And to show back up at the house after what you've done? I mean, it's nervy enough to leave, but it's another thing to come back. I wonder just how much patience does dad really have? He's about to find out. Because as he gets to the fence line, the scripture says in verse 20, but while he was still off, the boy, while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Say it with me. Compassion. That's who God is. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, which, of course, is absolutely right. And I'm, I'm sure he's also a little scared about what happens next. But this, this reconciliation, this repentance, this coming together, this heaven on earth does not happen without vulnerability. It just does not happen without vulnerability. It's required in the process. Renee Brown, a vulnerability researcher, says it like this. Vulnerability is the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome. The boy doesn't know. He's simply going in the hope that the character of his father is the same as it has always been, that of love. So yes, it takes courage to be loved, doesn't it? It's not just courage to love. It's also courage to be loved, to put yourself out there and to say, I don't know how this is going to go. But I'm trusting that this character of love is good. And so I'll stand before it and see what God has for me. And so look what the Father says. He doesn't order him executed. He doesn't bemean him. They don't go into a long argument. They don't talk about every past wrong that he's ever done. What does the father do? He said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, this put a ring on his finger, that's a really big deal. It's not some ring. It's the family ring. And in this one phrase, the boy knows that he's not going to come back and work for his father. He is a son. The father puts the ring on and and in doing that, you are my son. You're not a slave. The slaves are about to make a meal for you because you're my son. You were lost and you're found. You were dead and you're alive. You're my son. You're home and I love you. And everybody else is going to, you know, come and celebrate this. What happens is that the father surpasses the boy's wildest dreams, his wildest hope by not only caring for him, but also we're restoring his family identity, his authority, and power that he thought was gone forever. Not in his wildest dreams did he think he would have a second chance of leadership in his family system, of wearing the family ring, of being in the good graces of the family system. His father goes on even beyond that. He says, and get the fatted calf and kill it. Steak tonight, boys. It's a good meal. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to, what's the word? Celebrate. This is what happens when we get in right relationship with God. And we get right relationship with God when we get in right relationship with others. 
with one another. But it's not always just easy. You do have to take the long road home. Leonard Cohen wrote it like this. He says, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. It's a broken hallelujah. There's always pain with love. It's worth it. But it's a broken hallelujah. So yes, it takes courage to to be loved like the boy. But it also takes courage to love, doesn't it? Tumberland says that there is no form of love that does not require some form of courage, some level of courage, he says. And that's right. You have to be courageous to love and to be loved. Think about what the father risked. If you're in a shame-honor culture, do any of y'all lived in a town of less than 1,000? Everybody knows your business. Everybody knows your boys. And everybody is already talking. Oh, you know, he's home. And everybody knows it. Everybody's talking. Father knows this. Father knows this. So to love his son, the father had to risk double shame. He had to risk the family name. He had to risk every person in town saying, has he lost his mind? How unfair that is to his other children. How unfair it is to, I mean, Pickett, his wife, the ranch, whatever it is. How foolish is he to put the family fortune at risk again? He risks his standing, he risks his respect, but none of that matters to him because love wins. The love for his child wins over his comfort or respect among others. Ian Pitt Watson says it like this, some things are loved because they are worthy and some things are worthy because they are loved. Friends, you are worthy because you are loved by God. That's it. That is it. That's the good news. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you and I could be here today to know that we can live and learn and lead in love. You are loved, not because of what you've done. You are loved because you're a child of God. You are worthy because you're loved by God. The son is worthy, not because of his actions. The son is worthy because the the father chooses to love him. And you are loved by God. You are loved by God. And every time you turn your life towards God, anytime any one person turns their life towards God, there is a party in heaven. That's what the scripture says. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns their life towards God in the way of God, than over, you know, 99 righteous persons who are just doing the next thing. And, and that's why we always have the cross front and center here. That the cross of Jesus reminds us that we are loved that God gave everything God could give that you would know that and that we would never miss it Paul tells this very important truth to the early church in Rome when he says if God is for us who is against us he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us will he not with him also give us everything else who will separate us from the love of Christ will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword no No, no, friends. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Again, not through our own 
strength, but through him who loved us. Him who loved us. That's where our courage comes from. That's where our life comes from. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because of the love of God. Not because of anything you've done or I've done, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, lest any of us boast and be proud about it. So if this is the case, then why don't we just live in love all the time? I mean, that seems like a good thing to do on Valentine's weekend, right? So why don't we do it? You know as well as I do, it's because we're afraid. What if it doesn't go like I planned? Friends, it never goes like you planned, right? I mean, have you ever had anything go exactly as you planned? I would love to meet you, talk that through with you. How did you do that? See, here's the thing. Uh, Growing up, I learned that fear is simply this. False evidence appearing real. We say that with me? False evidence appearing real. That's all fear is. You see something and you go, oh, no. And God's like, people, that's not a big deal. I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's when we forget that God is with us that we have problems. That fear takes us over. Friends, when we forget that God is with us, we do. We forget that God is with us. And all sorts of terrible things happen on the back end of that. And so over and over through the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right, all 66 books, we hear over and over and over again, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. Why? Because God is with us. So when Joshua is about to go in the name of the Lord and to do the things that God has for him, and he was afraid, right? He's following Moses, of all people. And God says to him, I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Say it with me. Wherever you go. Wherever you go. Wherever you go. Still true today. Now, it's also true that there are friends of ours people you love that have been in very, very difficult spots. And this idea that God loves them, would welcome them home, is beyond their wildest imagination. And they're just looking at the church. They're looking at your life and my life. They're looking at our church and they're like, is that real? Or am they just going to blow me up? And that, that's true for people. We, we would never look down on folks that have been hurt. These are the very people we are to love so deeply that they can rise up and courage by our love, that God's love through us. It's true that trauma and abuse and neglect and unsafe family systems, that still happens. Racism, it still happens. Prejudice, all these things still happen, and they all cloud and confuse the message of a God who loves us and is with us. Because they look at these things and they say, how is this possible? When this happens to me in my family system or this happens to me in my community or this happens to me in my church, I I can't believe that God loves me. And it takes courage as a community of faith to step out and to begin to change that, to stand with those who are hurting, to stand with those who have been abused, to stand with those who injustice has not yet been righted for them. How else are they to know the love of God if it's not through you and me? It takes vulnerability, it takes action, it takes love, it takes courage. 
And so our action steps is that I want to encourage you to love others intentionally and watch their courage bloom. Simply say, I'm going to love this person. They need courage. I need courage. I'm going to love them. And maybe my love can give them the courage to do what they need to do. Maybe my life, as an example, can be an encourager to them. Encourager to them. I saw this in, a, in the most beautiful way in a, in a family birthday party, of all things. Many of you all know my family and my family system. Uh, my dad's a pastor. He's been a pastor more than 40 years. Uh, and I love my family. Really, really great. Uh, but one of the temptations and hardships on a pastoral family is you care for everybody else, which doesn't leave you much at home. I mean, because you, you've, you've spent and spent and spent and caring. There's, did you know that you know, pastors are one of the few generalists alive today that you know, they, they're, not, they're never not on call? Uh, unless you're like me, and every once in a while I have a wonderful Brandon where you know, I can not be on call for a little bit. So what happens, one of the temptations for pastors' families is that you, you learn to serve, and you learn to go, and you learn to show up to church, and you, you bless people. That's what you do. And so, and, and you don't make much money, too, normally, at least in the United Methodist system where you're moved around. And that was the case for my family of origin. And so when a birthday would come for my sister or I or my mom or my dad, this is the way a birthday would work at my family. You'd get up and you get ready for school. Someone may or may not say happy birthday to you. You would go to school. You would come home. They'd say, do you have a good day at school like every other day? And then mom would say something like, hey, happy birthday. What would you like for dinner tonight? You get to choose because it's your birthday. And that's it. You might get a present. You might not. If you got a present, it was probably something that you needed and we'd save money for that, you know, most other families in our community would simply get because you need it. And you'd get it that day. Not us. We would get it on our birthday. Because that's what we could afford. And I'm not, I'm not saying boo-hoo about that. That's just, the, that's just the way it was. And I didn't really understand how, how that shaped me, how that shaped my mind, and, and what was what. And then I had a good friend in college. And I got invited to his 30th birthday party. And I, I was out of school, I'd been to seminary, I'd gotten out, and I'm thinking to myself, who has a 30th birthday party? You're an adult. I mean, who does that? But we decided to go. I was like, I want to see this freak show. I mean, what, you know, who, who does this? So we go. And we go to our friend's house, and he's married, and all of his family's there, extended family's there, friends from college are there, his family's put this on, his wife and his family. And at the end of the evening, they say, okay, well, we want you to open your presents. I'm like, he's 30. And what they meant by presents is that they had 30 presents for every year of his life. And these were presents they had gotten over years thinking about him and what would be meaningful to him because of their love for him. 
this one, and then that one, and then this one, and then that one. And the 30th gift was the family ring from his grandfather who had passed that year so that he could live in courage and go bless the world, which he has done beautifully. He's a professor and blesses hundreds of kids every year at the university level. I'd never seen such love poured into a human being before and the courage and the power that that put in him and how he could just go out and do things that I had never even considered because just the power of the love of his family surrounded him. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life other than our two kids in my life. So I want you to know that you can be an encourager to others by your love. And you can be with people who need an advocate. Because not everybody has one. You're blessed, truly blessed, if you have ever had an advocate. And you can be that advocate for someone else. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen? And then let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.